All right, we are back for an all-science third segment on today's program. You know, you can make you can make a pretty good public affairs show using only back issues of the week, The Economist, and New Scientist magazines. Um, I would note that two of those three are British publications. And uh, let us go to New Scientist, the 9th of April issue, for a story that I thought was absolutely fascinating. It was noted that villagers in India really should not swap the brass mutka pots that they traditionally use to collect and store water for more modern alternatives. Um, of course, in a lot of parts in Asia, uh, cheap plastic uh, items uh, are considered rather more modern, and of course their, their price is so low that they're taking over. And uh, potters, which used to be a, uh, a rather extensive um, a field of employment, in a lot of Asia are all going broke because nobody wants to use pots when you can just go buy cheap plastic. But using these traditional brass mutkas is actually pretty sensible because a study done by uh, Rob Reed and Puja Tandon at Northumbria University in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, and I just like to say Newcastle-upon-Tyne because I don't get the chance very often, Decided to investigate this, they added E. coli to water in various containers and discovered the bacteria were all dead within 48 hours in mutkas. Why? They analyzed the water and found out that microscopic amounts of copper leached into the water from the brass in the container. The levels are vanishingly low and safe, says Reed, but uh, the bacteria uh, found them to be fatal. Unfortunately, the bacteria die only after one or two days, and most villagers do not leave water in mutkas that long. However, longer storage could now be um, encouraged because of this natural ability to act as a disinfectant. I, I find that quite interesting. I hope you do too. And other studies that using water from contaminated sources in, sources in Indian villages confirmed this finding. So there you have it. A cheap, low-tech method of disinfecting water. And speaking of disinfectant and not necessarily low-tech, we have some bad news from United States hospitals. Researchers at Northwestern Memorial Hospital in Chicago found that types of bacteria commonly found in hospitals, which are usually some of the very worst types, being that they're resistant to antibiotics, could survive on a computer keyboard for 24 hours. In fact, it's said that computer keyboards fester with colonies of bacteria which can easily spread from the medical personnel who use them to the patients they treat, and vice versa. Dr. Allison McGeer of Toronto's Mount Sinai Hospital told the Canadian press that using a strong disinfectant did kill the germs, but it also damaged the computers. The difficulty with keyboards is you can't pour bleach on them. They don't work so well when you do that. Now, because it's nearly impossible to keep keyboards sterile, researchers say the onus is on doctors and nurses to wash their hands vigorously and often. And I got to tell you, that is not going to be a very good solution. There's got to be a way of putting a... Uh, a layer of plastic on top of a keyboard and removing that, or we're going to have big trouble, ladies and gentlemen. All right, science article uh, uh, that I from UCLA from yesterday, which I thought was absolutely astounding. Quoting from uh, a uh, from the AP wires, 
A tabletop experiment created nuclear fusion, long seen as a possible clean energy solution under lab conditions, scientists reported. But the amount of energy produced was too little to be seen as a breakthrough in solving the world's energy needs. For years, scientists have sought to harness controllable nuclear fusion, the same power that lights the sun and stars. This latest experiment relied on a tiny crystal to generate a strong electric field. While falling short as a way to produce energy, the method could have potential uses in the oil drilling industry and homeland security, said Seth Putterman, one of the physicists who did the experiments at UCLA. The results appear in today's journal Nature. Uh, I find this really weird because when uh, when Stanley Pons and Martin Fleischman claimed in 1989 that they had achieved so-called cold fusion, um, their work was pretty much discredited because it really couldn't be repeated. It, it was not reproducible. That's one of the hallmarks of good science. If you say that this happens when you do such and such, well, someone else should be able to do such and such and have that same thing happen. But people kept saying, well, there's something here. I kept hearing you know, rumors here that they're, they weren't giving up on it because there appeared to be something there. And I guess something there has now been in, in Nature magazine. They found a way to get a couple of deuterium atoms, which is, uh, you may recall from chemistry and physics, is a hydrogen that has a neutron in its nucleus along with its proton. Um, slam into one another, produce helium, produce neutrons, produce energy. Of course, the trick is with this to get more energy out than you put in, which, which really is the trick. You know, when I was hanging out as a student on, on, on this wonderful campus a couple of decades back, we were all convinced that diffusion was the wave of the future. But about 1979 or 80, the U.S. government decided that spending research money in a big way on fusion was not going to pay off. So they, they stopped doing it. The money was spent uh, on uh, oil and gas, and the money was spent on conventional uh, nuclear fission power plants, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, now we're still waiting for fusion to come online these many years later. We're going to come back and deal with fusion, I think, for a full segment, maybe even a, maybe even a full show. Fusion, I think, is a, is, a, is a worthy topic for probably a whole show sometime in the months to come. All right, let's talk, uh, let's talk some more physics here. Um, uh, New Scientist magazine noted, um, I think in the same April 9th issue, that the FBI has suspended the use of a controversial technique for matching bullets from crime scenes to unused ammunition in a suspect's possession. The technique in question relies on various levels of trace elements in refined lead to identify the batch to which a bullet belongs. I'm noticing as I skim the article that nowhere in it do they mention the name of the technique, which is neutron activation. It was claimed falsely uh, some time back that this technique was applied uh, in the John F. Kennedy assassination to prove that the bullets came from the same weapon. And people pointed out this, this was bunk. And um, among the reasons why that was bunk and why a lot of people who were convicted of crimes were apparently uh, done so with some dubious, uh, dubious techniques is that the ratios apparently uh, may not be unique and the batches of lead that carry that characteristic fingerprint are so large 
that it may be impossible to distinguish bullets made months apart. Uh, equally bad, the panel that invalidated this technique warned the number of bullets from a single batch might be anything from 12,000 to 35 million. And if, if 35 million bullets share a characteristic uh, you know, signature of, of the trace elements of lead, it's not exactly an airtight case that bullets found in your gun matching bullets found in a victim somewhere necessarily tie you to the crime. Now, you ever have to put up with these people who like to brag about how early they get up in the morning and how much they get done and how all the rest of us are sleeping and they like to, you know, they like to imply that it's just basically it's a matter of self-discipline and the fact that they're just, you know, motivated individuals. Well, apparently uh, Dr. Lewis Petacek told the BBCnews.com that actually new research located a gene that drives such people to get out of bed before dawn. It's a genetic issue, which, frankly, I always suspected. But yes, scientists have identified a gene that causes people to nod off early and then wake up fully alert before the dawn. People with this gene don't sleep more or less than other people. They just sleep at different times. And I'm puzzled by the fact that there's been a lot of news lately about various uh, mammals they've turned up that, uh, that lived in the time of the dinosaurs, and people seem excited by this, but we've, haven't we always known that there were mammals back then? It seems that, you know, we did. They're finding out some more details about them, that some of them were actually eating the dinosaurs, and some of them kind of looked like uh, were strange rodent-like uh, animals. But uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I guess. I guess they're just finding a whole bunch of new mammals that are really, really old, and this is exciting people. But it's not exactly, a, you know, it's a revelation. If you can explain why this is is so uh, so terribly exciting, send us an email at info at radioparallax.com, and uh, and we'll talk about it on the air. And uh, on the medical front, uh, doctors are worried that a um, a bacterial strain, Staphylococcus aureus, um, that infected a lot of healthy young people in the 1950s, has acquired resistance to most modern antibiotics and may pose a rather serious threat once again. In 1953, a rather aggressive strain of Staphylococcus aureus, called 80-81, was identified in Australia, went on to cause serious outbreaks of skin infections, sepsis, and pneumonia worldwide, often in healthy young people and children. This was resistant to penicillin, but with uh, newer antibiotics like methicillin, it was largely eliminated in the 1960s. In recent years, of course, Methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, MRSAs, have um, turned up in hospitals and sometimes in communities, and people are fearful of what it might do in um, another um, epidemic that spreads around the world. And as we've talked about on this program uh, previously, it's worth noting that two-thirds of the antibiotics produced in the United States do not go to treat human beings with uh, various bacterial illnesses, but instead are put into various animal chows and put through the gullets of our animals raised for food under current factory farm crowded 
conditions. The antibiotic seems to keep them out of trouble in those conditions and perhaps does some other things uh, metabolically we don't quite understand to get faster growth rates. But of course, the side effect of that is the animals are pooping out antibiotic-resistant feces and will be a source and already have been a source of human illness in places. And this is a practice that really has to be stopped. Now, for the past quarter century, uh, we've been aware that there's been a massive die-off around the world of amphibians. People have wondered whether this is a canary in a coal mine warning to us that something is afoot. Uh, but exactly why the frogs are dying still remains a mystery. But one um, one candidate for contributing to this uh, this die-off apparently is Roundup. <sighs> Um, a study done by Rick Relier, an ecologist at the University of Pittsburgh, noted that it's extremely lethal under relatively natural conditions. Monsanto's Roundup is commonly used on genetically modified crops as well as conventional crops. By God, we need to get Dr. Relier on this program to talk about this. Monsanto, of course, is disputing these findings and has a website set up to counter these published scientific results. Now, we need to hit environmental issues because, you know, what's going on out there is sometimes a lot more alarming than, you know, PR would have us believe. Case in point was over my friend Mia's house, opened up a copy of Orion magazine and took a look at the picture on page 7, and was sad to say that I actually guessed correctly what I was looking at. What I was looking at was a mine on the island of Nauru in the Pacific, a phosphate mine, which consists of probably millions of years worth of accumulated uh, seabird dung. Um, in the 1970s, Nauru was famous for having one of the highest per capita incomes of any nation in the world, including the uh, oil-rich nations of the Middle East. It was said that each Naurian was worth half a million dollars. But there's been talk for many years about how the Naurians had to go out and buy themselves a new island with all that money. But apparently a new island was never purchased. And now they can't relocate. And they can hardly move, let alone a new island, because uh, apparently they have um, had all their money stolen from them by their political leadership. What does that remind you of? The government set aside a trust in the early 1970s. It was subsequently embezzled and squandered on dubious investments, including an ill-conceived London musical about the life of Leonardo da Vinci. And by the way, Nauru is just about out of guano slash phosphate, meaning they're about to run out of dough. In the last decade, they've been unable to pay public servants. They sold passports to anyone willing to get an HIV test and turned a blind eye to offshore banks that allowed the Russian mafia to launder $70 billion. It appears the island's going to need to invest at least $250 million to bring it back to life, reforesting it, but it's been mined within pretty much an inch of its life. And the whole island pretty much consists, uh, you know, as you can see in the picture if you get a copy of the magazine, uh, basically a, uh, a giant uh, wasteland of rock pits and 
coral pinnacles. This is a subject we'll bring up when we speak to uh, Dr. Jared Diamond, uh, hopefully later in the month of May. I think we're done with this show. Uh, We're out of time, so we have to be. You've been listening to Radio Parallax, produced, as always, by Mr. Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We will see you next Thursday at 5 o'clock. Our thanks to Gary Chu for, uh, for coming on. We'll maybe bring him on next week as well. And now, uh, stay tuned for Todd.